We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentile give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Implitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those who work in the Lord, Tryphonea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Esocrantus, Aphlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Well, good morning. I'm going to start out by giving a shout out to Kristen there. I think anytime you uh, find yourself on the uh, list of scripture readers here in Emmaus and you uh, see that you've drawn the list of names, uh, you have to instantly morph into a linguistics expert, so uh, I appreciate you doing that well. Uh, uh, please allow me to introduce myself, and I actually wanted to uh, start with a bit of a formal apology to you, the 9 a.m. crowd. Um, this is actually my first time to be at the 9 a.m. since we switched back to our two-service model. Uh, majority of the reason for that being we uh, have a two-month-old in the home, and uh, not that we've been sleeping in, but everything works about 45 minutes slower when you move from two to three kids, so... So we've been uh, getting our foot under us, but uh, it's great to see you. Uh, Anyone who I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Allow me to extend a welcome, especially to any visitors joining us today. We're so thrilled to have you. Uh, We hope that you find this to be a place uh, 
where you're welcomed. And uh, I'd like to take a moment just to invite you after the service not to slip out uh, without saying hello, but uh, we actually have a connect table in the lobby. We'd love to meet you there, uh, give you any uh, information you might like to learn about us, get to know you a little bit better, uh, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, to the saints of Emmaus, uh, what a joy it is to be with you. Uh, I praise God for this body. And uh, as we open up the word today and we see uh, Paul's encouragement of the saints in Rome, this, this call for them to unite around the truth of the gospel, I just want to commend you and thank you for, for doing that faithfully, uh, particularly in a year that has thrown many obstacles forward in front of us, and yet I feel very proud to be part of this body of believers, and, and thank you for your faithfulness to each other in this season. Um, in way of general announcements, I definitely invite you guys to make sure you're following us on social media, keeping an eye on, on the ticker behind us uh, after the service, things like that, but uh, in terms of general announcements, I, I don't have any specific to make this morning, so uh, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this time, and then we're going to dive into this glorious text. So please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we lift high your name. Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Lord, we lift high the name of Jesus. We pray that everything we do in this time, from Lord, the words that we sing to Lord, the reflections of our heart, Lord, to our actions as we go forth from this place, Lord, we pray that it would serve to magnify the name of Jesus in our midst. Lord, it's not lost on me that this morning... There is a people who has gathered, Lord, that is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Lord, a people who, even in our midst now, are experiencing the joys of birth and the pains of death, Lord, people who are experiencing the highs of loves of family, and Lord, the lows of loss of loved ones, loss of jobs. So Lord, would you use this time, Lord, to strengthen your saints, God? Would you use your word this morning to... Build up your church. God, if there's any among us this morning who are walking wayward, Lord, would you draw them near with your kindness? Lord, if there are any in our midst today who are currently walking in darkness, Lord, would you allow the light of the gospel to shine upon their hearts as only you can do. Spirit, apply your word in a way that my persuasion and eloquence never could. Lord, but would you apply your gospel to the hearts of each these men and women, boys and girls, Lord, and in so doing, bring glory to yourself during this time. Lord, I pray that you would do that. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. Upon the conclusion of my uh, college years, I was able to join a team of brothers and sisters in Christ to travel to South Asia for the purpose of sharing the gospel in a place that is uh, quite isolated, shall we say. Uh, not only isolated in the sense of its geographical location, for it was nestled high in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains, far away from the reaches of much modern technology, but isolated in every aspect in the sense of a very strong cultural and spiritual stranglehold in the form of Tibetan Buddhism, Hinduism. Now, I must confess, during this six-week time period, it was some of the most challenging days of my life partly because of the culture shock and isolation, but largely due, in fact, to uh, what I can only describe as an intense level of spiritual darkness and oppression. 
As we would walk through the streets, we would pass by temples and we would hear chanting going on and only later find out that most of these chants were actually chants calling out to demons, trying to appease them and ask them not to harm us, not to make our lives miserable. We spent much of our time, uh, being a young man in my early 20s, spent a lot of our time with other young men in their 20s. In fact, every day we had a standing invitation to go play basketball with a group of young men. And uh, we soon learned that many of these men were unemployed with no prospects of any job. In fact, their schedule tended to look like staying up all night, drinking, partying. Then they would wake up around the time they would come out to the basketball court just before dinner time to play basketball with us and repeat the process over and over again. For most of these men and women that we ran into, their lives were marked by a certain level of just despair and hopelessness. I say this not to insult these men and women or to disparage them, but it was one man that we met that stood in such contrast to them that it left a permanent impact on my life. You see, there was a man twice my age who had become a believer. One of only a handful of people who had professed faith in Christ in that region. And yet, instantly, I found a connection with this man. He wasn't marked by the the despair and the, the joylessness we saw in the faces of those around us, but it was a man who you truly could describe as happy. You felt like he was your best friend the second you walked into the room with him. His life was utterly marked by a a joy that transisted all of the circumstances that surrounded him. You see, he had suffered much in coming to Christ. And friends, it was in that moment that it hit me that every superficial connection that I had made with others in that area, things like liking sports, talking about soccer, playing basketball, paled in comparison to the connection that I made with this man nearly twice my age. And the one thing that drew us together was certainly not culture, for we were very different. Certainly not life experience, for his life path had journeyed very different from mine. But the thing that bonded us together over those six weeks was our love of Jesus Christ. Friends, there was a unity in the gospel I felt with this man that was deeper than even many of the friendships I've had here in the States over different superficial cultural commonalities. And friends, as we see Paul coming to a conclusion of this glorious Romans letter, as we've had the joy of walking through this gospel-rich plea to the church at Rome, we see today him ending with his final plea and exhortation to the Roman church. His last word, next week we'll look at a doxology, almost a a prayer of blessing over the church. But this week we will see his final exhortation to this church. And his call to them is to be united in the truth of the gospel. Not unity for unity's sake over trivial or superficial things, but unity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's notice this together as we jump into this text. I might be cheating a little bit, but I'm going to let uh, Kristen's reading of verses 1 through 16 suffice for us, Uh, and uh, we're going to jump into this thing and see if we can get a hold on it. Uh, As we work our way through the passage today, we're going to notice kind of three landmarks as we travel through. We're going to see Paul's commendation of faithful laborers in the truth. We're going to see his warning against those who sow disunity, 
And we're going to see his final encouragement to walk in obedience. So, upon survey of this list, the first 16 verses, we see a very large list of different names that pop up. And uh, upon kind of a further study into this, there doesn't seem to be a real solid structural map for us in terms of how it is arranged. It doesn't appear that Paul had a necessarily a, a road map in mind as he was listing these names. So uh, in order for us to kind of get our hands on this, I want us to look at this list of names kind of using three uh, markers for us. So the first thing we're going to ask is, who is it that he's commending and asking us to greet? What is he commending in them? And then finally, we're going to notice why he is offering this greeting and commendation. Uh, before we jump into that, I did want to just make a quick mention. We see this word greet used over and over again. I wanted to kind of give us a little bit more of a tangible understanding of what this word has in mind. Uh, certainly, as Paul says this, he uh, isn't simply implying a say hi for me, but there's something a little bit deeper in this. In fact, many scholars have expressed that uh, this greeting is meant to encourage affection and unity present within this community of believers. In fact, implicit in the, his greeting and requesting of them to greet one another is an acknowledgement of this person's value and an exhortation for others to be of one accord with them and with others like them. So with this in mind, let's go ahead and, and look into this and see, first and foremost, who is it that Paul is greeting in this moment? So upon kind of diving a little bit below surface level of this list, some very neat patterns begin to stand out to us. As we look at this list and analyze the who is being spoken to, we see that nearly half of this list is men, half of this list is women. We notice that 18 of these individuals likely come from Greek background and heritage. Eight of them have Latin names implying likely that they are Roman in origin. Seven of these brothers and sisters in Christ are Jewish in their nationality. And many scholars would point to uh, probably at least a handful of these individuals are either former or current slaves. And friends, it's within this that we see the beauty of the gospel on display. Here in this Roman church, we find this accommodation or this commendation, this greeting of these men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, all of whom are united around a common theme. I know for ourselves it feels like we're in the midst of a very pressure cooker, hot button time. I would su submit, this is very hard to quantify, but perhaps during this time in Rome, many of these distinctions were probably more so hot button. Many of these differences were seen as much more pejorative and divisive during this time. And yet we see this group of men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, gathered together and what is it that has drawn them near? What is the common thread that has assembled this group? Is it political in nature? Are they freedom fighters working to end the colonization of the Roman Empire? Do they all share a common interest in the same Roman chariot racing team? Notice Paul's distinction that he uses. He uses phases, phrases to describe these men and women like this. Fellow workers in Christ. My beloved in the Lord, chosen in the Lord, approved in Christ, in Christ before me. 
You see, their commonality is found in this rock-solid foundation. It has nothing to do with their gender or their nationality, but it is found in the fact that each of them, once enemies of the holy God, have been brought near by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, standing now holy before a holy God and equal to each other. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel displayed. This gospel that was promised through the seed of Abraham to bless all the nations is on display before us in this Roman church. Each of these brothers and sisters coming together at the table with no other credential needed. Friends, what a glorious picture of God's saving work. That is for all people. Friends, this is a a stoic reminder for us in this moment to, to remember that the gospel is what brings us together. That is why the gospel must be of first importance in the mission of the church. The proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection must be on our lips at all times. When we come to engage the world in whatever facet or venue or avenue that the Lord has placed us in, may we do so first and foremost with the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lips, because this alone saves, and this alone draws men and women together. Friends, let's notice next, what is it that is being commended? I want to notice this uh, kind of generically. We'll take a few of these in large groups, but I did want to highlight a few individuals specifically. Uh, starting with Phoebe, this is the first person that, that Paul mentions, and he uses this word, commend, to describe her. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 and 2 again quickly. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a, church, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So as we notice, uh, this woman Phoebe, Paul, sends her with this commendation. Uh, Most scholars would agree. Likely the reason for this commendation, it is most likely the case that Phoebe's the one who brought the letter to the Romans. She's the one who was carrying the letter to the Romans uh, from the area of Corinth to Rome itself. And so in providing a commendation for her, Paul is pointing out and saying, this is a trustworthy individual. This woman comes with my stamp of approval. As she brings this letter, she's not here to deceive you. But notice also that Paul is encouraging them to to help Phoebe, to serve this woman. And why is that the case? Because she's a sister in Christ? Certainly that's true. But also we notice because she has served many, she herself has been a faithful servant to the church. Friends, I'm struck by the life of this woman. Many things to me stand out. Here we see likely that this is a woman who is probably unmarried, lacks any familial responsibilities at home, so she's able to travel Likely also the case that she's probably very wealthy. Uh, Having a letter, sailing, these were things that would cost great amounts of money in the ancient world. And so in order for her to do this, likely it is the case that she was very wealthy and able to do that. Friends, we're struck by the reality that this is a woman who is wealthy and powerful, and yet she has chosen to use these gifts and skills that she has to bless and serve the saints of God in a way likely that Few can. 
And friends, while there are other names on this list I want to get to, I also want to take a moment to look at another name that stands out, almost uh, complementary, but also in contrast to this woman. In fact, this is not a woman's name mentioned, but simply her relationship to another person. For you see, Paul mentions a woman by the name of the mother of Rufus. We don't even know her name. Likely she has uh, very little power and authority. And yet we see Paul mentions her as someone who has cared for him as a mother. Friends, in reading this, I'm reminded of many personal heroes in the faith of my own uh, who account the influence that godly mothers had on their lives. Men who were profoundly shaped by the influence of their mothers and their homes, their faithful teaching and care their spiritual mothering of them. Friends, it reminds me of a, a testimony of a pastor that was once shared with me, a pastor who grew up in a home where Christ was not mentioned, his parents did not believe, and he found himself living largely in rebellion throughout most of his early and teen years. And yet every summer his parents would send him off into the countryside to stay with his grandmother. And being no one special of stature or uh, title, this woman faithfully shared the gospel with this man every single summer. In fact, oftentimes being as so bold to even sit at the dinner table and pray, Jesus, I thank you for the day that you saved my grandson, and I also thank you that you're going to make him a pastor. And yet for this man, he continued to walk in rebellion, and one day as he returned back to his normal life, he began to feel the call of Christ. He began to feel a desire to, to go to church, to hear the gospel taught. And it was while he was doing this that he first professed faith and believed. And in his excitement, he wanted to rush home and call his grandmother. And he called her on the phone. And as he was telling her what happened, he was quickly interrupted by the loud scream and shout and the sound of the phone falling on the ground and his grandmother's footsteps running through the house screaming, Jesus did it again, praise the Lord. Friends, There's a tendency in the world to try to define what success looks like. Particularly to the ladies in this room, I offer up to you both examples of these women. We have a woman like Phoebe who is very wealthy, successful in many ways, carries a certain level of high esteem and power, and yet she uses these gifts so that she might serve others and serve the church, and God is glorified in the delivery of one of the, what I would argue, the greatest written piece in the history of humanity, the letter of Romans. Contrast that, we see the life of a woman, we don't even know her name, and yet her kindness and care towards others. She has become a spiritual mother to many. And ladies, I want to encourage you in whatever situation that you find yourself in today. Take heart and labor well for the Lord. Because your work in the Lord is not in vain. Certainly there are many other names that I would love to dissect more and, and speak more on. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, two names that jump out at us as, as heroes of the faith who served well in the early church. Uh, we see Paul acknowledges them as those who actually risked their lives for the gospel going forward. We see Paul pointing to a man like Epinetus who was the literal first convert in Asia. The first person in the entire continent of Asia to proclaim Christ as Lord. Praise be to God. 
men and women like Andronicus and Junia, who were actual fellow prisoners of Paul. We don't know if that means they shared the same cell or not. Likely probably not the case. But these were individuals who literally went to jail for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, in the contrast to some of these extravagant things we see Paul mentioning time and again, over and over again, pointing to the life and work of everyday faithfulness. Men and women who are simply described as those who work hard in the Lord, who serve the church faithfully. And friends, I would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to ask ourselves, who are the types of people that we commend among ourselves? Who are those that we look at and say, that person is great in the kingdom of God? Is it the individual who garners the most attention? Perhaps their skill and rhetorical ability. Perhaps they've garnered the uh, image of being someone who is powerful and mighty. Certainly these things are not automatically bad. But friends, we notice in this passage, whether it be extravagant acts like going to prison for the name of Jesus Christ or everyday faithfulness of a spiritual mother, we see that greatness in the kingdom of God looks like faithfulness where God has placed you around the people in which he's put you. And Emmaus, I want to encourage you today to, to lean into this and press into this. Be faithful where God has placed you in this moment. We're all inclined to see greatness and want to imitate it. I think that is a natural inclination that we have, and it's a good one. But I want to make sure that we have calibrated ourselves to recognize what true greatness is. True greatness in God's kingdom is faithfulness. It's service to our brothers and sisters and service to Christ himself. May we be like these. Finally, I want to notice why is Paul offering up this greeting? What is his purpose in doing this? Likely, he has at least two things in mind in this greeting. I think one, it has been what we've been communicating this whole time, that Paul is endeavoring to encourage and unify this body into genuine fellowship. To see brothers and sisters walking faithfully in the Lord and to join alongside them in doing so faithfully ourselves. Certainly we get this picture in a place like verse 16 where they're charged to offer up a holy kiss. I know this imagery is... Uh, a a little bizarre, to say the least, for our current cultural pleasantries and sophistications. But uh, implicit within, within this, we do see that it is offered up in other places in Scripture and in early church history. What we see here, though, is this, this commendation to come together in genuine affection for one another. Genuine love and care for the brothers and sisters among us. And uh, I'll let us try to find... Uh, ways to apply that. Uh, maybe a nice, I'm all for a good fist bump myself, so I will accept a uh, holy fist bump from any of you at any moment. So, but Friends, we notice also that Paul likely is attempting to do something else in this greeting. Remember last week we talked about how Paul was seeking to go from Rome to Spain, and he made those intentions known in his letter. He said, I want to come to you I want to enjoy fellowship with you, encourage you, and be encouraged by you. But ultimately, I have another agenda. I want you to send me to Spain. And friends, likely, Paul is tapping into this on this greeting by mentioning the names of these men and women, these faithful among these, this church that he has personally known and served with. 
He is providing for himself almost a, a letter of recommendation in their midst so that when he gets there, the people who don't know him will recognize that he is faithful. This is a very bizarre illustration, so I apologize if it doesn't land, but I am a person who was born and raised in Oklahoma, and uh, there's this very strange thing that happens, but you can be talking to somebody, and everything's kind of at that first weird introductory level, but as soon as you find out that either A, they are from Oklahoma as well, or B, they have some kind of distant relative from Oklahoma, automatically that gives them some level of credibility that uh, can't be denied. It's very bizarre. Maybe some of you guys have experienced it before. But in so doing, Paul is effectively doing this for himself. He's saying, these faithful men and women among you, I've served with them as well. They are fruits of my ministry, fellow laborers in the gospel. And as such, when I come to you, uh, I have provided my credentials as well. We see Paul also has this in mind in verses 21 through 23. He mentions a greeting from the believers at Corinth where he is stationed. He mentions many names here, and in so doing, he is reminding these believers in Rome of their mutual connection in Christ to the believers across the world and how his faithfulness in the gospel has been validated through his ministry worldwide. So it is that we see that Paul has encouraged these believers to come together in fellowship and preparing to send him. But we notice he takes a, a shift in his final words here. Particularly in verses 17 and 18, his tone shifts from calling for a unification, calling for them to come together and labor well together, to a caution against unity. See, we notice here that unity in of itself is not a virtue. And there are times when separation is appropriate. So let's lead that together in verses 17 through 18. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So coming off the tail end of this call for unity, Paul cautions them that there are some in their midst who we must be leery of. Those whose teachings are to be avoided. And friends, as we notice this, we see that Paul appeals to them to avoid those who cause division. What kind of division is he talking about? Is he simply saying, avoid anybody who's ever divided under anything? No, he gives very specific parameters here. It's unclear if, uh, based on our studying of the, the circumstances, Paul has a specific group in mind here. There is a group that is infiltrated within the Roman church that is sowing this uh, dissension, or if Paul simply has in mind, as he has in so many of his other letters, the potential for individuals to come in and do this. But Paul offers up this caution for us that there are times within Christ's church that the proper method in dealing with individuals is to separate. And friends, this comes as a little bit of a surprise, right? I think it was safe to say this is an important interjection for us because as we have seen, Paul has been encouraging unity throughout this letter. In fact, we've seen throughout the book of Romans this charge to come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. In fact, several weeks ago we looked at how he said, those of you who are strong in your conscience and faith need to bear with those who are weaker. He said, those who have a weaker conscience towards 
Secondary issues, third issues, need to not sit in contention over those who have stronger conviction. Paul has encouraged this body to be united, and yet here he provides us with a prescription for when a break of fellowship is necessary. And so these parameters are helpful for us. I want to make sure we know exactly who it is that Paul's talking about and what he is calling them to. Notice first Paul says that the division that he's calling for, or that he's speaking of, is a division that's caused by an erection of an obstacle to the gospel. It comes when someone is trying to add to or circumvent the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only means of restoration before the Father. And friends, this is a good meter stick for us in our current iteration where it feels like we are bombarded with the call to separate, join a tribe, get into a smaller group as fast as humanly possible. Paul's words in this moment is making the distinction that our separation is to be marked in this case by an individual who has persisted in teaching a false gospel. Secondly, we notice Paul's charge that the motivation in this is idolatrous. Someone who is doing so is sowing division on the basis of catering to their own sinful appetite, their own deceitful desires. So in this, we recognize that this is a barrier to the gospel when someone advocates that which is clearly condemned in the scriptures. Someone who has called us to indulge in what Christ has said to avoid. Friends, we are to avoid those such as these. Let me add this reminder that throughout scripture we have examples of the call to Avoid false teaching and false doctrine. We have these prescriptions on how to deal with a man or woman who is persistently walking in sin, who refuses correction. And I fear that our current cultural moment has a danger of infiltrating into how we as the church act. Perhaps some of this is blown up by the presence of media, but it would seem in this moment that we find ourselves at a crossroad in our culture where if somebody does something that falls outside of the line of uh, acceptance within a particular group or people, the immediate reaction is to scorch and burn, right? Destroy their character, say they were never a part of us, they have nothing to do with us, they're a terrible person, we hate them, hashtag retweet this 25 times. But friends, this was never the way that the Bible prescribed to handle such things. In fact, we see throughout Scripture the reminder that church discipline has never meant to be prescribed as vindictive. But the purpose of church discipline has always been restorative. It is a call by the saints of God to welcome and plead for a brother or sister, for a man or woman to cease in persisting and walking in sin and walking in false doctrine contrary to the gospel and to come back into faithfulness in Christ. So friends, as a reminder, this is how we approach these things as the church of God. To restore, but also to avoid. So long as it persists. In light of this, we see Paul ends with a final exhortation and a warning and a promise of hope. Let's read this in verses 19 through 20. It says, 
For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in many ways, as we're reading this, it can almost seem as though verse 19 and 20 are separate from each other, and even kind of separate from the context of the rest of the passage, but... I think if we look at that closer, we can see Paul's line of thinking is pretty clear here. Paul has just encouraged these saints to be of one accord, united in the truth of the gospel. But he has warned them to be wary of and to avoid the teachings of those who would seek to place barriers in between sound doctrine and the saints. From there, Paul gives this encouragement and admonition in verse 19 that the obedience and faith of these Roman churches have been seen throughout the world. In fact, their reputation of faithfulness is known to all the churches. And yet Paul fears that there is an enemy of the church who will want to seek to destroy this, who will want to send in division, to send in false doctrine, so that he might distort the faithfulness of this church. And Paul, in his final exhortation, reminds them that for those who remain faithful, there is a promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That no enemy of the church will persist and stand, yet Christ Jesus will deliver the victory that he has promised. And so what do we do in the meantime as we wait upon the Lord? Paul's exhortation is this, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Remain in obedience and faithfulness to the truth of the gospel in line with godly living as well. And friends, this is to be our posture as well, church. This is an encouragement to grow in our discernment. To be able to see the truth of the gospel and the truth of scripture and apply it to the world around us. To be able to see when false doctrine or when sinful action comes into play, and to veer from it, and to avoid it. Friends, this is our joyful task that we get to do individually, but also corporately as a body of Christ, as we walk towards the shores of Jordan together. May we do so in confidence, knowing that Christ has secured our victory in this. In light of these things, church, I'd like to offer up uh, first three application points to the church, and one to... Uh, any among us who might not know Christ today. My first point of application, my first charge to you, Emmaus, is to strive for unity and the truth of the gospel. Can we just take a moment to acknowledge that this is a challenge at times? Particularly, it seems like in, in years like 2020, find ourselves uh, particularly susceptible to struggling in areas like this. I, too, must confess, I find myself tempted to join the rat race of joining tribalism, making my circle smaller and smaller and smaller, defining the lines of who can and can't be within the circle. And yet, friends, I'd like to offer up this charge to you. I fear that we live in an age of information where we have deceived ourselves into believing that we have an omniscience. The fact that we can click a button and immediately see events happening all around the world has 
tricked us into not only thinking that we're omniscient, but also deceived us into thinking that we're omnipotent as well. That it is our responsibility to fix all these things. And church, I'd like to offer up a suggestion to you today. For the majority of us, our radius of influence is infinitesimally smaller than we could imagine. And so I would challenge you today, church, to operate under this conviction. Am I myself, me, walking in obedience to the truth of the gospel and godly conduct? Am I doing that? Next, I would invite you to ask the question, am I leading my family, my spouse, my children, to do likewise? And friends, if I can be quite frank with you, no one in here is perfect, but faithfulness in this endeavor will reap a fruit and godly reward far greater than we could ever imagine. Far greater than any perceived influence of a blog we might write or a tweet we might send out. I'm not advocating a form of Christian isolationism. From there, look out further. First and foremost to your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. Am I striving for unity in the truth amongst this body with these people that I can actually reach, touch, holy fist bump? Am I living faithfully within that, in this place? And friends, I am more than convinced that a commitment to be faithful in this area will reap rewards far greater than you could ever imagine. Rather than trying to change the world outside of us, I don't want to speak cynically. I tend to be a very optimistic person by nature. But I truly believe that if someone successfully launched the church unification team and successfully implemented everything, within two hours, maybe two minutes, there would be the, the second launch of the new, better church reunification team, right? So rather than try to seek to have this faux omniscience and omnipotence. Be faithful where the Lord has put you, just like these brothers and sisters in the Roman church. Work hard with the gifts and skills that God has given you in the place where he's placed you. Friends, the next thing with that, in line with that, is display the glory of Christ through our unity in the gospel. Friends, this is an opportunity that we have in a world that craves unity. We see the pipe dream that it is under our current perceptions and ideals. But friends, the gospel has a chance to shine brightly in our midst when the world sees us as the only place where actual unity happens. Friends, I, I say this with no uh, level of triteness. But when the world around us is burning, we don't rejoice in that. We lament it but it provides us a greater opportunity for the glory of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ to shine more brilliantly in the midst of darkness. And so, church, may we labor together to display the gospel as one body, as one people, unified under this purpose and banner. Finally, church, I invite you to have confidence in God's promises. Paul ends this letter by reminding them that God will crush Satan under their feet. Church, I fear that there is a tendency in 
each of our times to believe that we live in the most troubled era where the greatest threat to the church exists, the likes of which have never been seen before. Certainly there's probably some truth to that as times and culture change, as moments happen. But friends, I invite you to take a step back and look at the beauty of God's work throughout history. Not to trivialize or make flippant upon the suffering of God's people throughout history, but as a reminder to you that in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of conflict and challenges to the gospel and to the church of Jesus Christ, we tend to lean towards the tyranny of the present and ignore the fact that throughout history the enemies of God's people have sought to destroy the church, and yet Christ Jesus in His grace to us, has persisted this church and has preserved it through the lives and legacy of ordinary men and women like yourself and myself, living faithfully to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I challenge you today, Emmaus, to persist in that. Find joy in the hope of that, that Jesus Christ will not give up on His church just because the internet was invented. We will preserve be preserved, and we will finish. So continue to walk faithfully together. Finally, the last word I would like to speak to any who would acknowledge today that they currently do not serve Jesus Christ. They do not acknowledge Him as Lord. Apologize, I haven't spoke very much to you, but the letter in this context is very much aimed at the believers in Rome. But I want to invite you to do something. A little bit dangerous, I'll admit. But my challenge to you is to observe this body of believers. If you look out into this room, you will see men and women across different ages, races, socioeconomic classes, various persuasions and opinions on different things. And yet, I can, from personal experience, tell you that these men and women have come alongside each other. Some of which there would be no reason for them to ever be in the same room, and yet they have stood together through some of the darkest moments of each other's lives, lifting each other up and holding on to each other and, and caring for each other. And why is this the case? It's because that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Any dividing wall of hostility that would keep us apart, has been obliterated by what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We have been placed at the throne next to our Savior. We have been united in Him and cleansed in His perfect life, death, and resurrection. And as such, we walk together. And so I would invite you to look upon these men and women and see the beauty of lives transformed and brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I would ask you to consider Jesus yourself. Consider Him. And place your trust in Him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift high your name. We thank you for this testimony of faithfulness to the men and women who we have studied this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would Lord, do so likewise in us. Lord, I thank you that Lord, there is a temptation for me to list off the names of the faithful men and women in our midst this morning. And it was an overwhelming thought to do because there are so many who have been faithful to me and my family and, and to each other. Lord, I pray that you would sow within us a body of people who labor hard for you, 
Lord, who work hard in quiet corners of our little small infinitesimal radius. And yet, Lord, pray that the, the white-hot glory of the gospel would shine brightly in our lives, Lord, and that you would draw men and women to yourself through the lives and faithfulness of these ordinary brothers and sisters in Christ who stand in our midst this morning. Lord, we lift high your name and thank you that you have promised to preserve us through the end. Lord, may we be faithful as we walk forward uh, into this time that you've given us. In your name I pray, amen. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.